ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, and thanks for joining me today. I'm Andrew McDermott. On this episode, I'm sharing with you a couple of posts by David Kopich, published at evolutionnews.org. In case you're not familiar, Evolution News is the flagship news and commentary website of Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. It's a wealth of information and wisdom on the debate over intelligent design and evolution, as well as a host of related topics. The first post by Coppage is called Animals Tune Behavior by a Lunar Cycle, But How? Many unrelated animals tune their behavior by the lunar cycle. How do they do it, given that sunlight overpowers moonlight? Researchers in Austria think they've found a clue. A cryptochrome protein that appears to respond to the lunar cycle. Cryptochrome proteins are also implicated in the geomagnetic sense in birds. Whatever they found, it surely must represent only a piece of a biological puzzle. Let them explain in this press release from the University of Wien. Many marine organisms, including brown algae, fish, corals, turtles and bristle worms, synchronize their behavior and reproduction with the lunar cycle. For some species, such as the bristle worm Platanaris dumerili, Lab experiments have shown that moonlight exerts its timing function by entraining an inner monthly calendar, also called a circalunar clock. Under these laboratory conditions, mimicking the duration of the full moon is sufficient to entrain these circalunar clocks. However, in natural habitats, light conditions can vary considerably. Even the regular interplay of sun and moon creates highly complex patterns. Organisms using the lunar light for their timing thus need to discriminate between specific moon phases and between sun and moonlight. This ability is not well understood. The first statement there should alarm evolutionists. Circulonar clocks are found in very unrelated animals, evolutionarily speaking. Vertebrates like fish and turtles, and invertebrates like worms and corals. Each of these must have hit upon lunar tuning independently. The researcher's paper, in Nature Communications, points out that we humans have connections to the lunar cycle too. In addition, lunar timing effects have also been documented outside the marine environment, and recently uncovered correlations of human sleep and menstrual cycle properties with moon phases have reinitiated the discussion of an impact of the moon even on human biology. As recently documented for corals, synchronization of these reproductively critical rhythms by anthropogenic impacts poses a threat to species survival. The bristle worm as a test case. P. dumerili, the so-called bristle worm, is a polycate, much-haired, worm in the phylum Annelida. Smithsonian Magazine lists 14 fun facts about these polycates, an amazingly diverse family of marine organisms. Unbeknownst to most landlubbers, Polycates rule the seas. There are at least 10,000 species of these swimming, bristly worms, some of which pop with brilliant colors or light up with a bioluminescent glow. They've adapted to every imaginable marine habitat, from deep hypothermal vents to crowded coral reefs to the open ocean, and many have found ways to survive that are definitely bizarre. Interested readers can browse through Smithsonian's lists of facts and look at the pictures. A short horror movie shows a lionfish learning too late not to mess with a bobbit worm, a different species of bristle worm in the Atlantic. It's a creature of nightmares, so be forewarned. 
The poisonous lionfish can't use its defensive weapons against this lightning-fast monster, a worm. It's a terrifying creature right out of the movie Tremors. Some bobbit worms grow up to 10 feet long. Fortunately, attacks on humans are rare, limited to what the Daily Mail describes as nasty bites. Evolutionary Challenges Back to P. Dumerily, a much more benign polychaete, only 2-4 to centimeters long. A type of ragworm, this species is found worldwide. Wikipedia calls it a living fossil. Although it's an invertebrate, it has an axle cord, a paired longitudinal muscle that displays striking similarities to the notochord regarding position, developmental origin, and expression profile. It swims with a coordinated system of cilia on its surface. Whole-body coordination of ciliary locomotion is performed by a stop-and-go pacemaker system, the article says. That's not the only pacemaker in this amazing little worm. Despite having a pair of the simplest eyes in the animal kingdom, it can see the phases of the moon. Those little eyes do nothing to help the evolutionary story. The ciliary photoreceptor cells are located in the deep brain of the larva. They are not shaded by pigment and thus perceive non-directional light. The ciliary photoreceptor cells resemble molecularly and morphologically the rods and cones of the human eye. Additionally, they express a ciliary opsin that is more similar to the visual ciliary opsins of vertebrate rods and cones than to the visual rhabdometric opsins of invertebrates. The bristleworm's genome also challenges Darwinism. The genome of Platinaris dumerili contains approximately 1 gigabase pairs, or 109 base pairs. This genome size is close to the average observed for other animals. However, compared to many classical invertebrate molecular model organisms, this genome size is rather large, and therefore it is a challenge to identify gene regulatory elements that can be far away from the corresponding promoter. But it is intron-rich, unlike those of Drosophila melanogaster and C. elegans, and thus closer to vertebrate genomes, including the human genome. Wikipedia prudently abstains from speculating on how these worms evolved. Possible Lunar Oscillator Found in P. Dumerili In the introduction to the paper, the authors say, Despite the importance and widespread occurrence of lunar rhythms, functional mechanistic insight is lacking. They found a cryptogram protein they call L-cry that appears to keep time to the full moon. Its asymmetric dimer appears to have two monomers with very different light sensitivities, which provides the molecular basis to sense and interpret light intensities across five orders of magnitude. This is important because full sunlight swamps moonlight, so the worm brain must be able to discriminate the smaller peaks of illumination from larger ones. Additionally, L-cry must be able to avoid being tricked by artificial light that can also outshine full moonlight. It must also be robust against darkness on cloudy full moon nights and by natural acute light disturbances such as lightning. Experiments in the worm room under controlled simulations of sun and moon illumination cycles demonstrated this ability. L-Cry's major role could be that of a gatekeeper, controlling which ambient light is interpreted as full moonlight stimulus for circa-lunar clock entrainment, they say. If an organism can set its lunar clock to a full moon, it can also discriminate other lunar phases. The full moon is unique in having the longest duration of light at night, followed by sunrise. 
A circumlunar clock presupposes, therefore, the ability to measure the duration as well as intensity of light. Elcry may do this with a ratchet mechanism. As the protein accumulates photons, it reaches higher quantum levels that photoreduce parts of the lower sensitivity monomer. The authors also observed Elcry accumulating in the nucleus and diminishing in the cytoplasm during the simulated moonlight exposure time. This suggests that different cellular compartments convey the different light messages to different downstream pathways. Even so, this cryptochrome discovery only delivers the first molecular entry point into the mechanisms underlying a moonlight entrained monthly oscillator. The photoreceptor for Elcry is unknown. Additionally, Elcry must cooperate with the circadian clock genes, adding to the regulatory complexity. How these proteins signal a cascade of physiological behaviors when it's time to spawn remains curious. Certainly, more extensive mechanistic studies are required to further verify our models. Convergent functionality. Finally, an evolutionary consideration. Monthly synchronization by the moon has been documented for a wide range of organisms, including brown and green algae, corals, crustaceans, worms, but also vertebrates. Furthermore, recent reports also provide increasing evidence that the lunar cycle influences human behavior. Are the lunar effects mediated by conserved or different mechanisms? Since Elcry is not known in these other species, the authors speculate that either conservation of other proteins will be discovered, or that other proteins with analogous functions will be found. Says the paper, last but not least, the molecular mechanisms underlying the circulunar oscillator also await identification, and it is possible that conservation exists on this level. Examples are known from circadian biology, and it will now require further work to reach a similar level of understanding for moon-controlled monthly rhythms and clocks. Surely, though, conservation of function using entirely different molecular mechanisms poses a severe challenge to Darwinism. It would seem to require entirely different sets of mutations to be selected for a common function. In design theory, intelligence starts with the concept and can use different instruments to play the same tune. The Palolo Worm We end with a spectacular case of circa-lunar time-tuning. Another polychaete, the Palolo Worm of the South Pacific, undergoes a remarkable reproductive cycle timed to both lunar and annual cycles. Britannica explains its life cycle this way. The palolo worm of the South Pacific inhabits crevices and cavities in coral reefs. As the breeding season approaches, the tail end of the body undergoes a radical change. The muscles and most of the organs degenerate, and the reproductive organs rapidly increase in size. The limbs on the posterior segment become more paddle-like. After the animal backs part way out of its tube-like burrow, the posterior section breaks free and swims to the surface as a separate animal, complete with eyes. The anterior end, still attached to its tube, regenerates a new posterior end. The free-swimming half-worms contain sperm and eggs. Tens of thousands of these half-worms swim to the surface, as if on cue, and release their reproductive cells always at the same time of year and at a particular phase of the moon. The free-swimming section always makes its appearance in the early morning, for two days during the last quarter of the moon in October. 28 days later, it appears in even greater numbers in the final quarter of the November moon. At the surface of the sea, the sperm and eggs are discharged, and fertilization occurs. 
Palolo tails, considered a delicacy by the Polynesians, are gathered in vast numbers during swarming. Worms. Such simple lowly creatures. But what wonders await the biologists who delve into their mechanisms? Like everything else in biology, design-inspired awe explodes in the details. Wow, fascinating stuff, huh? And by the way, don't beat yourself up if you don't follow every word of this all at once. These articles are available online for you anytime, so you can go back and check names of creatures, body parts, and other technical language anytime you need to. What's vital is that you and me, many of us laypersons, can nevertheless engage honestly with the science so as to study and evaluate the evidence firsthand and gain a better understanding of the design of the natural world. So with that in mind, to conclude here, I'll read another evolution news piece by David Coppage. This one's called, Darwin, We Have a Problem. Horse teeth are not less evolved. It was a perfect Darwinian tale. The evidence was right there in the fossils. Teeth evolved to have higher crowns in ruminants, for example cattle, sheep, antelopes, deer, giraffes, over time, because the rise of grasslands caused more tooth abrasion and required more durability. Evolution met the need and provided the dental and digestive toolkits for the evolving diet. Here's how it was told, according to Gordon D. Sanson, in a PNAS commentary. The rise and spread of grasslands on different continents during the tertiary coincided with the appearance of dental characters assumed to be adaptations for eating grass. The dogma was, and largely still is, that grasses are particularly tough and abrasive compared to the ancestral diet of woodland plants. Grasses have long been thought to be particularly abrasive because of their high levels of endogenous silica bodies, phytoliths. Although exogenous dust or grit on the surface of grass, leaves, can also cause tooth wear. Grass eaters evolved very durable teeth with sacrificial high crowns that could endure high levels of wear. The teeth also developed highly folded and more complex enamel ridge patterns, assumed to be necessary for chewing a tough fibrous diet. There were other adaptations associated with moving onto grasslands, including changes in locomotory morphology, herd behavior, and body size. But the linkage between tooth form and function, and the changing biomechanical properties of the diet, are of interest here. It is a particularly rich story, because teeth, being so hard and durable, are well preserved in the fossil record. In addition, ruminants evolved four stomachs that wash and sort some of the grit from the grass, allowing the animals to regurgitate the food, chew the cud, and break down the bolus into finer particles. This provided an inadvertent advantage over mammals that didn't evolve a four stomach, like horses. A difficulty with tooth evolution. Alas, an earlier paper in PNAS by Valerio et al. raised a difficulty with the tooth evolution story. As evolutionists, these agricultural scientists agreed with part of the tale. It appears true that cattle and other ruminants sort out the grit and the dirt in the forestomach. The team proved this in a series of experiments. The sorting mechanism does appear to reduce wear on a cow's teeth. Many reasons have been suggested for the evolutionary success of the highly diverse clade of ruminants. Ruminants have evolved a forestomach physiology, that leads to unparalleled chewing efficacy for mammals of their size, with an extreme particle size reduction. The paper continues. This is due to a well-documented particle sorting mechanism in their forestomach 
but is based on the density of the force to make content, which floats in a liquid medium. This mechanism should inadvertently also wash off a large proportion of grit and dust before the material is regurgitated for rumination. Here we show in live animals that this suspected washing actually takes place. Sanson thought about this finding. He put the new evidence alongside the old evolutionary story and started asking questions. Recalling Kuhn's philosophy of science, he wondered if biologists had been defending a paradigm without questioning its assumptions. If so, they've been doing it for a century and a half. Says Sanson, It is inevitable that we conduct research within the lens of existing paradigms. But Thomas Kuhn argued that re-evaluation of assumptions encourages paradigm shifts. For over 150 years, the co-evolution of grasses and large mammalian herbivores has interested biologists and has become a classic textbook paradigm of adaptation. Valerio et al.'s contribution prompts a fresh look at the assumptions underlying this paradigm. Valerio et al.'s paper raises questions that are worth unpacking. A simple observation should have perturbed this story long ago. Horses are not ruminants. They eat grass but do not chew the cud. Why do equids appear so well adapted to grazing? Like ruminants, they can eat grass for 8 hours a day and live long, healthy lives. When Samson started questioning assumptions, he found many dubious claims in the story that were never well established. Is rumination a greater advantage than tooth complexity in avoiding wear? Is crown height more advantageous than reduction of particle size in food? Are grasses more abrasive than other plant diets? There is little evidence for this, Sanson asserts. Did hypsodonty precede the emergence of grasslands? Apparently not in South America. Are geological particles, such as volcanic ash, more abrasive than grass phytoliths? To what extent do grasses accumulate more exogenous sources of grit, wind-borne sediments for example, than the endogenous grit in grass phytoliths? Where is the true grit? Are high crowns more adaptive than enamel-rich complexity? Do all ruminants benefit the same from the four-stomach sorting mechanism if they ingest different quantities of grit? And most importantly, what is the driver for the evolution of tooth enamel complexity? Durability, cutting efficiency, or effectiveness, or both? A simplistic scenario. Here's a sample of Sanson ruminating on the complexities of these issues. They weaken, if not undermine, the simplistic evolutionary scenario. The cause of abrasion has become more contentious since several studies have questioned the hardness of plant phytoliths and consequently their capacity to wear tooth enamel. However, even if plant phytoliths do contribute to enamel wear, it has been estimated that African buffalo may consume between 10 and 28 kilograms of grit and 300 to 400 kilograms of endogenous silica per year, depending on the soil type. A 15-year-old buffalo on granite soils might have chewed over 200 million times on a diet containing about 6,000 kilograms of silica, 14 times the amount of grit on the food. These are formidable quantities and attest to the durability of teeth and the necessity for high crowns. With the potential for such quantities of abrasives in the diet, does any inadvertent advantage become less important in grazers if the wear from endogenous silica swamps the wear from exogenous grit. On the other hand, if browsing ruminants consume lower grit levels but virtually no silica, they may have a relatively higher inadvertent advantage. The relative contribution of endogenous to exogenous abrasives 
needs to be systematically measured over diets, seasons, and soil types, and integrated with studies on chewing behavior. Sanson remarks, Arguably, Valerio et al. inadvertently highlight just how much we do not know about chewing, which is such a vital part of food mechanical preparation that a large herbivore might invest eight hours a day in the activity. Then he proceeds to ask more questions. Ruminant teeth must deal with fresh, abrasive food on ingestion and softened, washed and sorted food on rumination, possibly engaging with a wider range of biomechanical properties than a non-ruminant. A horse must accommodate unwashed and unsorted food particles. Why then are the teeth so similar in many ways, and why does the fundamental paradigm still make sense when the assumptions may not be so robust after all? Are the biomechanical properties relevant? Diet toughness is often considered in terms of the energy required to chew the food, but that may not be a limiting factor. Rather, toughness might affect how the food locally resists fracture and flows along the basins between the complex enamel ridges when chewed. On and on he goes, questioning assumptions that have supported a paradigm for a century and a half. It seems Valerio et al. just made it tougher to chew the Darwinian story. Another quote. Valerio et al. suggest an added level of complexity. Their perspective as agricultural and veterinary scientists familiar with the intricate workings of the ruminant's digestive system, bears on the assumptions made by paleontologists about the co-evolution of grasses and grazers. Unraveling the selective forces that have led to the patterns of dental evolution has just become more difficult. Unnecessary difficulty. The difficulty lies in the narrative, not the evidence. Each mammal, ruminant or not, is living well in its habitat because it has the right tools for the job. We don't see horses or cows keeling over in the grass from starvation, suffering from worn-out teeth and aging gums. Ranchers have more horse sense than this. They can tell a horse's age by looking at its teeth, even if they are courteous enough to avoid looking a gift horse in the mouth. Retired horses put out to pasture continue to graze and usually die of other causes than tooth loss. The cows are not laughing at them, mooing that they should have evolved four stomachs. Isn't that the motivation that causes so many evolutionary tales to fall? In their myth of progress, they envision animals emerging with more complexity over millions of years. Their universal tree of life icon starts at a single root and branches out in all directions, each branch innovating the tools necessary for whatever creature happens along. Innovations emerge because of selective forces that impel them towards solutions for the challenges that the environment throws at them. It's such a blissful scenario. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? Evolutionists have been chewing this cud for too long, assuming that Darwin's magical selective forces have the true grit to deal with gritty grass. Time to change the channel and watch the way things work. That was a reading of two articles on animal design and evolution from David Coppage. Find more of Coppage's writing at evolutionnews.org. Just click the Writers tab at evolutionnews.org. For ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Until next time, friends, thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.